John, edit this down. I'm, I'm going to, don't worry. <laughs> edit it down to only the funny bits. I have faith. Yeah, you've got to edit, Alison. Always going to be very careful, edit. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 39th episode of Octothorpe, which is coming to you on the 2nd of September 2021, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. Summer is over. There is no more fun. Cease having fun immediately. Now I'm really gloomy. (laughs) Yes, it has been summer. Um, But we have all sat down at our usual recording rigs on the usual day at the usual time, and we are recording a usual Octothorpe. It's been a while. It's been like six weeks since we sat together on a Sunday morning recording Octothorpe in our separate places. To be fair, I'm not in the usual place. Are you on Plague Island? Well, I think I am on Plague Island, but specifically the reason I could be here is it is least plagued island, I think. I'm I'm in sandbox quarantine. Worst sandbox game ever. If Liz actually says the name of the place she is, I have to bleep it. So please don't say the name, Liz. It's not pronounced like that. God. Is it not? How is it pronounced, Liz? Phuket. Oh, fuck it. Definitely not pronounced about that. You're all very rude. Yeah, Alison. It's like, are you five? Yes, you are. Hey, I, I resemble that remark. I am 12. We have a myriad of letters of comment, but on the subject of the word myriad, I was reading this here, and Mark Plummer used the word plethora in a letter of comment, wondering if I would spot that it was a reference to Octothorpe, and I sent him an email saying Alison would not approve, and he sent me an email back saying, aha, you read it. So that was very good and made me giggle quite a lot. Mm. Hurrah. Um, So yeah, me and Mark are now like, I guess, doing references for each other in our locks. Uh, This is a great sport I highly recommend. And we have letters of comment, although not from Mark. But we have letters of comment from Ali Baker, Fran Dowd, Chris Garcia, twice, Caroline Mersey, Karen Schaefer, and Peter Sullivan. Yeah, this is what happens when we don't do a regular episode for six weeks, isn't it? We have a backlog of a myriad of plethoras or something. Uh, we have a block, <laughs> which, which is a backlog of logs. Ali Baker writes to tell us about her hobby of watching how inappropriate children's books that are recommended to children by adults who haven't read the book for 50 years can be. Yes. She includes, The next time I see Piers Anthony recommended for a nine-year-old girl, I'm burning the internet down. I have never read any Piers Anthony and I have never been a nine-year-old girl, so I am badly placed to comment on this. Um, but Ali does say don't recommend Enid Blyton to kids. And, and yeah, I think even as someone who read Enid Blyton when I was a kid, I, I would not would not do that now. Uh, no. Um, she also says she's seen Conan the Barbarian recommended for an eight-year-old boy. And if you have an eight-year-old boy who you think might like that sort of thing, they might like Beast Quest books if they haven't read them already, which are basically... Conan the Barbarian without so much sex and violence. In fact, without the barbarous bits, I think I realise. On the subject of Ali, our very own Alison Scott was on episode three of Fantasy Book Swap, which at the time of recording is the latest episode. I was discussing 
Tamarind and the Star of Ishtar by Jasmine de Bilan and Marianne Dreams by Catherine Storr, which was my fondly remembered children's book, which I think held up quite well. It's a bit old fashioned, but it doesn't have anything that causes you to choke on your tea, unlike many of these books from my childhood. Yep, that's fair. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And I enjoyed doing it. But it was me kind of talking with Ali about books for a whole hour, which is not like me, because I don't normally talk about books very much at all. Is that why Faultless Millennial Daughter is, has the name she has? Uh, yeah, no, she's named after Marianne of... Well, she's not named after Marianne of Marianne Dreams, who's a, who's a grumpy, spoiled child. Um, but I like the name, and that's why I liked it. I had liked it for quite a long time. And when I said, um, should we call our daughter Marianne? Stephen was kind of like, huh? yeah. I suppose. That's kind of half of a nice story. <laughs> Ali said that starting the podcast had got her unblocked on reading. That's really good. I thought it was, it seems to have got other people unblocked on reading as well. And I think it's really good as a way to start to think critically about books without having to think too critically about them, if you see what I mean. So I, I, I really enjoyed doing it and I think it's a great podcast and people should listen. Agreed. Um, and I am going to be on a forthcoming episode of Fantasy Book Swap as well. Um, so, uh, so I, I very, um, very uh, nervously emailed Ali to be like, I'm sure that you've got loads of people, but if you need someone, I would love to be on. And uh, Ali very kindly uh, invited me. <laughs> Is it an invite if you ask? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, I inveigled an invitation, I suppose. And yeah, so I'm going to be on. I'm super excited. She sent me the suggestions for the books that she might link with my book. And one of them I was like, oh, I wanted to read that anyway. So I'm going to read that one. I'm very excited. Uh, and it's also, and this is a hint to the listener, it has recently been made into a movie, which you can stream on Disney+. Plus. So I'm also excited to uh, watch the movie after I've read the book. Um, so it's like going to be a whole thing. And I'm super, super, super jazzed about it. Um, so hurrah. Thank you very much to Ali for her lot. And then we have a lock from Fran Dowd, who writes about um, a piece she wrote for the programme book for Intuition in 1998, which started as an all-women committee. Uh, and she wrote a piece called From the Depths of the Sofa. And it's a it's kind of a long paragraph, and I'm not going not gonna to read it out here. But it was kind of talking about how... Um, they did their internal structure for running their convention and kind of instead of having a line management system they had a webbed subgrouping pattern so instead you kind of had a working group of people and then you had different kind of groups of people doing different things within that kind of large group and it, and it sounded really interesting um i might ask her if i could just put the put the piece in the show notes or link to it somewhere if it's online uh but yeah so it's really interesting take on kind of how you can do um kind of convention running in a way that is a bit less structured and ties in some of the stuff we were saying about divisions and and that kind of thing uh, in previous episodes with regards to easter cons and Worldcon. not sure it would work for a Worldcon, probably too big to be run in a kind of anarchic way but but definitely possible for smaller conventions yeah i find it interesting how i i had no idea this happened in 1998 and i suspect a lot of people uh who weren't working on the con in 1998 or really paying attention kind of know about it and it's interesting as it's i don't think anyone's ever tried it this way again as far as i know most conventions have gone back to having kind of a fairly traditional committee structure 
So, yeah, it was interesting for two reasons. One, that, you know, Fran's saying this is only of historical interest. But, yeah, it is like history that I had no idea about. I may have been completely forgotten if we don't have Fran or other people around at the time uh, letting us know. But also, yeah, I, it doesn't seem like anyone's ever uh, tried it again. So if you have tried running a convention in a similarly non-sort of committee-based hierarchical way, please let us know. What, like punctuation, you mean? Well, we know we already covered punctuation in our kind of like weird anarchic collective type approach. But I mean, we do sort of have roles. So the 1988 Eastercom didn't have a chair and that was quite stressful. What were you doing for the 1998 Eastercon? Causing trouble. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know that some things haven't changed much over the last 32 years. I feel like I was I was kind of like the Jamie Tart of con running. Alison Scott do 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 do. Alison Scott do 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 do. Alison Scott do 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 do. Alison Scott. Yeah, if you if you put that on the podcast, the Baby Shark lawyers will be in contact with you. I don't know what you mean. Entirely original track. I was um. So yes, there were there were too many egos, and it was we were all young, um, very young. We all felt much older than I mean, there were people who were as old as twenty nine on that committee, and Roger Robinson. Oh no, Roger Robinson wasn't on the committee. He he stepped aside sharply. <laughs> I have an important question to raise, which is if Alison Scott is Jamie Tart, uh, and I presume John is Ted Lasso, then who am I? Roy Kent. <laughs> chris garcia sent us two letters of comment uh he didn't just get super enthusiastic it's just that we didn't do anything with the first one until he sent a second one um so he says that um with regard to convention publications things have changed and atcon materials are actually more important what the atcon newsletter does is present you with the essential info in one curated spot and yeah, I think I think I agree with him on that point and kind of talks about he, he then goes on to agree with us on um, trying to bring publications and promotions under the same umbrella and et cetera and et cetera. Um, but that's all kind of from the Worldcon perspective. In his follow up letter of comment, he says that Celsius is just wrong and we should do another punctuation. One of those two statements is correct. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, I would also like to pull out uh, Chris's point because he does mention that, you know, he's, part of his job is to be a social media professional and he mentions how how good promoted tweets can be, which is something I hadn't thought of. But like, what is the return for doing kind of promoted tweets and promoted Instagram posts? I think I've seen some sort of like uh, promotional Facebook post boosting being used. Alison, I think you did that for Follycon or we did that for Follycon, but I let you do it because you know we're at Facebook. Only to the extent that Facebook said, oh, you don't appear to have boosted this with ads, but you've used ads on other pages in the past, have £33 to run ads. And we, and I said, I will run exactly £30 worth of ads <laughs> for nothing, and then I will stop. I do, not think that, I do not think that Facebook boosting is good for community groups, and I am very happy to talk about why not at length in a bar sometime. Um, because you probably it's unlikely that Facebook will so, show your post to the people that need, who need to see it. Um, what does work very well, though, is getting all your mates to share out posts on, on their personal pages. If you can get them to do that, then then you will get traction. 
The other thing that Chris says in his second layer of comment is that one thing that he's interested in at the moment is when we're going to take up the question of what roles podcasts should be playing in fandom today. Maybe it's me, Chris writes, but we've got a bunch of great podcasts about science fiction, but alas, few about fandom. And while the origins of Octothorpe are as clear as rainwater, which I think is a compliment... What should the role of podcasts be? Are they simply fanzine replacements? Are they more appropriately tools to allow for debate on topics of fanishness-esque subjects? What? And I would just like to say I agree. I think they're complementary to fanzines, aren't they? Because a good fanzine probably has some toothsome articles in it. And although podcasts could be doing that sort of thing, they're mostly... Well, we don't. I mean, other people do. We could get, we could have interviews with the important moving mover and shaker fans of the day, and things like so that. So it occurs to me we could do a serial esque, true crime esque episode of Octothorpe where we do like a deep dive into some convention thing, but we present it all as like highly dramatized interviews with people who were there. That that sounds like an absolutely vast amount of work. Be quite funny though. Oh, I said no to something yesterday. Oh, well done. Yeah, no, I thought you'd be pleased. Yay! I'm not good at that. I also, I also said I think we should probably help with that about something much bigger. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Fair enough. Swings, roundabouts. John, have you watched American Vandal on Netflix? I have not. Should I? So it is basically a sort of. It's a comedy show about, like, you know, a teenager at a high school who investigates in a kind of serious, you know, true crime drama, serial podcast style, the question of who drew a load of ticks on some cars in the car park. Um, it's very funny. It really kind of captures that sort of true crime documentary style thing uh, in a way you were suggesting. So I think basically you should watch that because I think what you're proposing is that we do American Vandal with a load of um, fanish in-jokes. That actually could be incredibly funny. Though I feel like Andy Hooper's radio plays were trying to get into that sort of space. No, I mean, and it sounds a bit like, I don't know if either of you have seen the Ryan Johnson film Brick. Yes. Which is a um, noir set in a high school, uh, which is also amazing. And I would highly recommend to any listeners who have not interacted with it. But I really like things that take the, especially, especially stuff that has like a really specific and defined language and applies it to something that it really wasn't intended to i just, i love it um so i'll have to look up american vandal thank you for the recommendation liz but i, I and then to go back to what Alice was saying but i basically think that um yeah podcasts are i think complementary to fanzine it slightly frustrates me that there's not more people from the fanzine fandom tradition exploring different media because um, I like old style fanzines, but I wouldn't half mind if like some of the people that were writing them were also doing other stuff that was a bit less old school. Um, but that's a conversation for, well, it's a conversation we've already had on previous episodes and we will probably have again on subsequent episodes. Hurrah! Pat McMurray wrote to say that he really enjoyed our piece on communications and he talks about um, kind of his thoughts on what convention communications are for which i i think we we covered but he, he's kind of vociferously agreeing with us but he also says that if he was going to go on the fantasy book slot podcast he would pick either swallows and amazons or citizen of the galaxy i mean i, I think swallows and amazons i'm not sure whether i i think eventually ali will probably have someone on who just has a thoroughly on un genre um um book yeah marianne dreams was quite close but i mean it, I, I think it's genre i would argue it was genre 
it's got magic in so i think it's hard to argue that for swallows and amazons unless it's all a dream if you actually had we didn't mean to go to sea or the other what's the other um fantasy one two of them are not a fantasy novels not not um they're fantasy novels about sailing yeah but they're 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 the stories the children make up so so you could have one of those and it would be on topic that's true and all that caroline mersey points out that we've omitted tray bake from our baked goods taxonomy <gasps> and says that brownies millionaire shortbread rocky road tiffin and 15s are tray bakes and not cakes nor biscuits now i don't know what 15s are no the 15s aren't what is a 15 i've never heard of this Okay, so 15s aren't... I, I mean, I defer because Caroline Mercy is actually from Northern Ireland and these are a Northern Irish thing. Um, 15s are made from 15 of various different things, like 15 glacé cherries and 15 chocolate buttons. I can't quite remember. 15 marshmallows, 15 ounces of flour. I don't, don't, don't quote me. I'll find a recipe and they are delicious. But when I have made them, you have rolled it all up in a log and put the log in the fridge and then cut it into 15 slices, so... That might be a different... I might have been using a slightly different recipe to her. Fair enough. Ingredients for 15s. 15 digestive biscuits, 15 marshmallows, 15 glacé cherries. This sounds amazing. A small tin of condensed milk and um, a load of desiccated coconut, and they are very delicious. Okay. And I will put the link in the show notes. They do sound very nice. And then people can argue possibly a lot. But it's not a tray bake because it's not baked. You just basically roll it up and stick it in the fridge and then cut it up and eat it because it's made from cooked things. But I know what, because I know what Caroline means, because I would have called Rocky Road a tray bake too, but you don't really bake Rocky Road. You melt the chocolate, pour it into a tray with the ingredients and then leave that in the fridge to set as well. So, so it's... um. Yeah, but that's still in a tray. Yeah, that is true. But no, I, I my view is that things like flapjacks and brownies are tray bakes because you bake them in a tray. <laughs> Very... I'm a very simple soul. Look, all right, stop it with your unceasing logic. Um, And then Liz, Peter Sullivan agrees with you. So, Liz, do you want to tell us what Peter Sullivan agrees with you about? Peter agrees with me on on, uh, conventions, not like just randomly posting stuff about fandom generally in order to boost their social media activity, which is something I call that as being a basically a not great way of engaging with people because it just feels super generic. Um, and back in the days before social media, he says, he ran the RSS feed for the Chris for Taff campaign, uh, which is basically posting whenever Chris Garcia did something on the internet, which is basically all the time. So really, it seems like the key thing here is that conventions need uh, Chris Garcia as part of their convention in order to have a, comp- a continual stream of things to post about on the internet. Or if not Chris Garcia, some Chris Garcia equivalent. Basically, we need a standard unit of Garcias for this. I, f- I feel like I'm looking for something like a Millie Garcia as a <laughs> unit of exuberance. What, what could Chris launch? <laughs> or maybe it's like, you know, some people lock Octothorpe at a rate of five Millie Garcias, which means they, you know, send us a letter every so often rather than a letter every time we release an episode. I think I think we we, we should probably define the unit of locking Octothorpe as the Briarly and not the Garcia. <laughs> that is true. Karen Schaefer says that I am right, yes, and that brownies are bar cookies, which I think might be the American word for tray bakes. Oh, no, they're tray bakes. Don't they have tray bakes? They have tray bakes in America. Do they, or do they have bar cookies? Because I'd never heard of a bar cookie before. Yeah, so a shortbread's a bar cookie, right? 
Um, she does mention no, that. No, because they don't really have shortbread in America. I mean, they do, but it's terrible. Do we need a Twitter poll on this one? Oh, maybe. Uh, engagement. Hashtag engagement. Hashtag content. She did also send us a picture, which I will put in the show notes, of a um, uh, page from a cookbook she has in which it says how to make bar cookies. So I will put that in um, in in the show notes. Um, but it includes brownies, dainty tea brownies, brownie confections and butterscotch brownies. So mm. I might have to try making some of these. Thank you very much, Karen. Peter Sullivan tweets in about Degrees Kelvin. There was a post or games fanzine called Absolute Zero that started at issue minus 273 and got to issue about minus 250 before it folded. Uh, he has no idea why he thinks he might, we might want to know this, but I enjoyed knowing it very much, so thank you, Peter. Is it a very good scheme for a fanzine to call Absolute Zero and start at minus 273? That's just 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 temperature fanzining. Uh... But that concludes the letters of comment. So uh, this week we heard the sad news uh, of the death of Earl Korshak. So Earl Korshak was one of the last two surviving attendees of the first Worldcon and also uh, part of the leadership of the Worldcon in 1940 in Chicago. He was scheduled to be a guest of honour at ShyCon 8 in 2022, which would have been 82 years since he had chaired the Chicago Worldcon. So I think he was a member of the leadership of the Chicago Worldcon at age 17 or 18. And then, you know, it was had been invited back basically for the most recent Chicago Worldcon. Um, I met him very briefly in 2019 at the Dublin Worldcon. Um, I think he came into program ops and we, we, we chatted a little bit and it was really astounding to me that I could still meet someone who was coming to conventions who had been there kind of right at the start of everything. So sort of right at the start of organized fandom. Um, and I do think that is something that we are gradually losing. We now have one attendee left of the first Worldcon. Um, and it's, it's just another sad event that kind of all this Spanish history is, uh, that was, was there for us to, to talk to and spend time with is is now passing on um i also kind of really love that you know he had a long enough life and a long enough career and a long enough career that he could actually like you know lead world cons very early in his life then drop out of fandom for many years and then come back to find that world cons were were still going on and i would have loved to to know what he thought what he thought when he sort of came back to world cons in the 1980s to see what they'd become to some extent, it's sad that we're losing these threads to our early history. But I think it's kind of fantastic that fandom has survived and remembers its traditions and has that continuous thread of experience that goes on for long enough that people who got into it as young teenagers are now dying at the age of, I don't know, how old was Earl? Quite old. Um, but Bob Madel, who is the last survivor, is 101 because I sent him a little badge with a propeller beanie on it for his 100th birthday last year. I don't think it's that sad. I think it's it's kind of nice that we have all of that tradition and that we wrote it down because of fanzines. And I guess podcasts are also a record, though I don't know if anyone's going to go back in a hundred years and listen to old podcasts and go, well, what were they going on? What, what was Weetabix anyway? <laughs> I didn't get to meet Earl. I did on my TAF trip get to meet Russ Hodgkins, who chaired Tricon 1, um, which was, was amazing. And he was at the first Worldcon. And I got to meet Dave Kyle and Art Widner as well. 
Um, and it is it's fantastic to kind of get to interact with people who do connect right back to the start and and I don't know whether any of those people have kind of written about their perception of the differences between fandom then and fandom now uh, but I agree with Liz that, that would be interesting um, but it is it's really nice that there's like this consistent through line right back to the beginning of, of our community and like I'm not always interested in using that as an excuse not to move forward as a community but it is really nice to have that sense of tradition and of history and to understand our origins is is a lovely thing to be able to do so yeah i, I uh it's a very great shame and as as alison says um only one remaining person who does kind of take us right back to the beginning um, i think shycon h has said that they are going to honor earl anyway as you would expect them to do i think that is the normal practice when guests of honour die between the announcement and the convention um, and hopefully they'll find some good ways to do that um, you can of course you can't interact with people from the earliest days of fandom but you know what they thought quite a lot because they have left the fanzines and you can read those I, I mean it's not true that everybody was a fanzine fan even back at the very beginning but there were lots of fanzine fans around and yeah no Dave Kyle was always very fond of newsletters and he would always go into the newsletter room at every Worldcon and congratulate the team on doing what the best Worldcon newsletter ever and it wasn't until about the third time round that that we worked out that we should stick and we should just kind of go oh that's nice <laughs> excellent okay on the topic of world cons discon 3 have released their new covid19 policy and we've linked to the file 770 post about that in the show notes which has not only the policy in question but a plethora of comments you can read uh, discussing people's thoughts on this announcement basically you can't go unless you're double vaccinated you've got to wear a mask at all times and if there are reasons why you can't have had the vaccine and you can't wear a mask uh, you should look at getting a refund or attending virtually and you can read more about this as i say in this uh, article in the show notes i think this uh in some ways makes a lot of sense uh and in some ways um has made alison very grumpy um so alison do you want to Maybe I should introduce your thoughts a bit more diplomatically. What do you reckon? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't think I was very grumpy, but you were saying reaction had been mostly positive. I've not seen many negative takes. And I have seen some negative stuff, but not a vast amount. So most people are happy. This policy disenfranchises people who can't get vaccinated or cannot wear masks, both of which do actually exist in countries that are less benighted than the United States. If you can't get vaccinated, you can get a, um, your COVID. You will still get a COVID certificate. If your doctor has said you cannot have a vaccine, you will still get a COVID certificate, <laughs> right? <laughs> but... That's not the case in the US, so it is disenfranchising people. It It is disenfranchising everyone with a child under 12. Um, and, and the notion that the way that you're going to deal with marginal groups is to say, just don't come. It's like taking the whole story on inclusivity and making it possible for people to do things back 50 years. And, and you know, they could do that and they think it's legal. I don't think it would be legal here, but I think it might be legal there. Um, so it would be interesting to see whether that's the case. But I think they could have gone quite a lot further to say, 
oh, right, no, we will make accommodations for people, but we will require a letter from your doctor or or we will require you, if you've got children, we'll require you to quarantine for two weeks before coming to the convention, something like that. They could have done these things if they'd wanted to. And they decided, oh, no, we'll just, it's easier to just exclude chunks of the community. The other thing that concerns me about this is that I don't think the clear masks that they're going, they may find that they're marvellous and it's all fine. Um, I, I'm interested to see how that goes. Um, I don't know how doing programme items through masks is going to work. I don't know whether it's actually going to be significantly better than being on Zoom. I do know that what you do if you sort of say, oh, well, we'll implement extremely stringent conditions in public area of the hotels is that you'll encourage people to go and socialise in room parties and other places where those conditions won't pertain. You might go, oh, well, those are only the people who don't care. But in fact, I'd rather see well-ventilated public spaces and I'd, I'd like to see some testing, which they're not doing at all as far as I can see. I think it's an interesting choice. And I hope everyone who goes has a fantastic time. Um, they've also disenfranchised every, everyone in the UK, but in fact, that's just because we can't travel to America. I don't know if we'll ever be able to travel to America again. I, I feel less strongly about it than Alison, although it's probably because I do not have, have never had kids under 12. So, you know, this would not be something that would stop me going. I think they're just in a very, very tricky situation. Um, and, and I suspect they thought this was the best way to get the majority of their attendees there because I think had they not had a vaccine mandate and a mask mandate, they would have also had a large number of people who said they didn't want to come because they didn't feel it was safe. So I think they've, you know, chosen this route on some very difficult public health grounds. Um, I, I think there are problems like if they had tried to mandate quarantine for two weeks, well, you can't mandate quarantine for two weeks because you can't actually check on that one. So you could ask people to do it. But obviously, if they felt they could they could run a convention on please wear masks and please get vaccinated before you come if you're able, then they do that. But in fact, they feel they have to mandate it in order to get that to happen. Yeah, I think it's really tricky. I think a large part of this is going to depend on how well they manage this kind of hybrid in-person virtual thing they're trying to pull off. Because obviously there are lots of people who can't go. Uh, no one with children under 12 can go. People who cannot get vaccinated cannot go because there's no medical exemptions, even for that very small proportion of people who can't get vaccinated. Obviously, it is going to be difficult to get people from not non-US or maybe Canada to the convention, partly because some of them are completely blocked from entering the country and partly because some of them are not vaccinated and will not be vaccinated by December and therefore can't come to the convention. So I think it's really tricky and I would, you know, obviously like to see this not have to be the case, but I think when they have to decide now what they think things will be like in December and what they think they have to do to put on a safe convention, this is the route they've chosen. Um, and like we say, it's not it's not new. It's the same it's the same approach that Convergence Con uh, took earlier this month. I'm not sure if there are other US conventions that have had the same the same plans. I've not actually looked at what Dragon Con's policy is. I should look that one up. And yeah, I can't comment on on it from a legal standpoint. Obviously, Discon think this is something that they can do in the United States. And given that other conventions have done it, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not sure if the same is true in the UK. Uh, or if there's a way you could say do this in the UK, but with sufficient opt-outs. And I think they should also be encouraging testing, even with masks and vaccination, with, you know, potentially thousands of people in one place 
And, you know, it is December in Washington, D.C. People are going to be socialising indoors. They are probably not going to be socialising outdoors. I think you would try and encourage people to at least be doing lateral flow tests, you know, on a daily or every 48 hour basis, just in case. I mean, lateral flow tests are not perfect, but they catch a lot of positive cases. If you could if you could cut down the number of if it's just another string to your bow, really. Yeah, it's another string to your bow. You have your strings of vaccines and masks and social distancing and ventilation and testing and you put all those things together and you know it's like the less like the Swiss cheese model. You're less likely to get a big hole. Um I think I think in general I am a little bit surprised they're not doing testing. Liz informs me that the US does not have free lateral flow testing, which may have meant that DC felt unable to mandate everyone take a lateral flow every day. But I think if this was being done in the UK, we would probably be doing that. Although I say that, but I don't know whether Novacon or Corflu or FantasyCon are. I haven't really seen much from any of them. So whenever I go to anything, I do lateral flow tests before I go to it and then after I come back. And when you go onto the NHS website to report your result. It's always like, why would you be doing that? We can't see any reason. This isn't one of the reasons why anyone would use a lateral flow test. And I'm kind of like, you know what? <laughs> your messaging is way off. So yeah, so I lateral flow before I go out pretty well. <laughs> Certainly before I go to a folk festival or a science fiction convention or anything like, or meet my mates for drinking. But that doesn't have any bearing on policies from UK conventions, right? Like, I agree with you. I also do that. But like, Discon has a more coherent COVID strategy than any of the British conventions happening for the rest of this year, I would say, even if we don't agree with necessarily how they're implementing it. I think, I mean, part of the difference is that I think for something like Novacon, which is, you know, Friday through Sunday, um, taking a lateral flow, say on the Friday morning and then not testing again might be okay. Whereas for a five day event like Worldcon, you could potentially have people becoming kind of infected and symptomatic sorry, not symptomatic, kind of becoming infected and becoming infectious kind of within the five days. So maybe it's more important to try and get people to test midway through the con because then you, you might at least get alerted to the fact that you're going to have a uh, super spreading event at your con. Oh, no, I mean, I completely agree with that. But like, I've just looked at the Fantasy Con website and it doesn't even ask you to do a lateral flow before you set off. There's literally no COVID policy on their website at all. Novacon have said, that they are going to have a COVID policy which reflects the state of affairs at the time they hold their convention and they have Dave Hicks doing this so they seem to have this in hand. Their website notes that he is a Dipney Bosch, a Gradiosh, an ISO 18001 lead auditor and he's won three Nova awards but it's not clear to me which of those qualifications puts him in better stead for the COVID policy. Yeah he's a health and safety professional so he does know about this stuff. Yeah but like, it's not, they don't have a policy. Well, I mean, they shouldn't have a policy yet because they don't need to set their policy until a few weeks before the convention. That might be fair. That's not so true for for the Worldcon where people make travel plans. But I think for, for Novacon. But they're expecting a lot of international visitors to Novacon because it's been scheduled right after Corflu. And I don't think Corflu has anything about COVID on their website. So like, I think it's fair to criticize the weaknesses in the dc plan but at least they've got one that they're talking about i'm a little bit concerned i mean novacon say they will have one which is something FantasyCon is in four weeks and has no mention and core flu is in uh two months and has no mention and it's like what are you doing like i want to know because i've bought my core flu membership but if it turns out that anyone can go and have licked anything they want i'm going to be pissed well i think you should be 
less pissed because I think people are overestimating the risks of this disease to the fully vaccinated. So you might want, if you were, say, caring for somebody who was immunocompromised uh, or in or couldn't have a vaccine for whatever reason, you might want to make different personal decisions. But if you're fully vaccinated, you're you're saying, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I, I might go for, I might go pony trekking, but I wouldn't go to this convention because of the risk of getting a, a breakthrough case of COVID. You're making very poor risk decisions because, or, you know, you might travel on a motorway or cross, or cross busy roads. You know, it's not that dangerous, is it? But I minimise my risk. You mean, if I'm going to cross a busy road, I will cross at the crossing. Like, if I want to minimise my risk, then, um, you know, if I know everyone else at the convention is vaccinated i know the chances of them having an infection are lower and it seems to be that the chances of them transmitting to other people are lower whereas if i don't know everyone at the convention is vaccinated then there is a higher risk so you know i don't think it's you know that are i mean i don't think it's entirely overestimating risk just that there is a risk and we know ways we can minimize that risk and we don't know at the moment in what ways cold flu and Novacon are going to do that yeah, and like I think, I think in general, like I am happy that Novacon have thought about this, and I'm not entirely sure what their policy will be, but I, I think they will at least be trying to minimise that risk. But in the case of a convention that hasn't mentioned it at all, you're sort of like, well, how are you managing this risk? Because I do think, although like I don't know, I'm, I'm not well versed enough in the biology of it to know what the actual risk is, and I don't, I, I get the impression that this is actually not a well known thing, and it's the source of much controversy in many different circles like i want if there is a significant risk i want it to be mitigated and like i'm not sure that requiring natural flow tests before setting off and requiring that if people can be vaccinated they are vaccinated is unreasonable and if the convention is not even willing to do that level of of leadership then i am not impressed by that because even if it's milder than it might be i still don't want to get it if i can help it yeah yeah, yeah. So core flu, if you're the core flu committee and you're listening to this, which I'm sure you are, then it's time to sort out your COVID policy. And um, incidentally, please don't copy me into the emails. Thanks. Core flu's been copying me into emails on running a virtual convention. <laughs> Brilliant. That must be amazing. And then they, having done that, which was fine, they carried on copying me into emails about travelling techniques and and PR4 and all sorts and I am not on the core flu committee so <laughs> I'm just deleting these emails unread at this point you know people end up with a cat because you know a cat walks in I think this is how you got the core flu committee uh, no <laughs> oh no anyway I, I had a more serious point which is I think you can tell just from our discussion here that you know the three of us probably have like slightly different attitudes to COVID risk and I think one reason as well for having your convention policy out way ahead of time is to find out what your membership thinks. Um, because I think it's going to be really useful to you to know whether your COVID policy has just made 50% of your attendees say, you know, actually, I don't feel I'm going to attend this year. And that's probably something you want to know sooner rather than later. We emailed FantasyCon to ask whether they had a COVID policy and they say that they do. It's just that they've only put it on their emailing list and they haven't updated their website. And that's why I couldn't find it. 
um, leaving that aside um, the policy is basically the situation is changeable they don't have control of the whole venue and it is difficult to mandate requirements and the political climate and some spaces will make it difficult to achieve distancing they are asking attendees to wear face masks indoors they are providing sanitizer in all the rooms they are encouraging distancing where possible uh, and they are going to encourage people to take a lateral flow test before attending and if they have symptoms to get a full covid test and if they are not well please do not attend so don't go if you've got covid that's important um, and they do also note if a group of people wish to sit or stand close together they can but they would ask attendees to respect that other attendees may need space i mean okay i guess i'm quite comfortable with that sort of policy because i kind of think if you're going to a convention it's because you want to see your friends um but i'll grant you it's a lot wishy-washier than the <laughs> than the um discon one i would be requiring masks in um flow spaces between program items and i would be requiring lateral flow tests i don't think i would be asking nicely on those and i hope that because i think what happens is you get what happens on the trains which is they ask people to wear a face mask and then about five percent of people do and that i don't like the thing about lateral flow tests is that you can't actually mandate them so what you can do is say please can everyone take a lateral flow test but i mean any checking process you have is going to be a bit rubbish this is the same thing that happened with the mask because people argued when the government made wearing masks not wearing masks in shops illegal that it would be very difficult to enforce but what happened is a large number of people started wearing masks because it had been mandated and then stopped again when it was no longer mandated and it didn't really matter that there wasn't a coherent enforcement policy it was the fact that it was mandatory that did it for a lot of people and i think there is a difference in even if your process for checking whether people are obeying is a bit rubbish you still see an uptick in 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 doing it if you say you have to rather than we encourage you to yeah, so I, I have a little policy hat on here, which is that you cannot have, you cannot mandate things without sanctions. So if you say something, you must do something, then you have to have something that says, and if you don't, this will happen. Um, you don't have to have enforcement, but you do have to have sanctions. But we probably don't have sanctions in practice. So I, I think it's still fine to say we, we want everyone to do this. Um, but I think if you say you must do this, then you are mandating it and so you say otherwise we will kick you out of the convention i think you just have to say you know you should take a lateral flow test before attending you can't say you must because we can't make you and but i think you know if you say something like you should take a lateral flow test for attending maybe it's a bit more forceful than well it would be a good idea if you took a lateral flow test i mean the only way to do it is to have a bunch of like desks where you you know have to watch people swap their own noses but I feel that's going to have a risk. I also like that they'll have sanitizer because having been to two festivals, one of which said, oh, we will have sanitizing stations everywhere and did. And one of which said, we will have sanitizing stations everywhere and didn't. I know which one I prefer. The UK Games Expo did was they said that lateral flow tests were mandatory before attending and you had to bring the um, text message you got from the NHS. Obviously, that would be trivially easy to forge. Um, but the thing is, it's not so much about... Obviously, there are loopholes in that way of doing it that you could drive a bus through. But the thing is, it would, I think it would still mean you got more obeying than just sort of asking nicely um that was actually something that got implemented after they said oh we're going to ask nicely and social media just went what and said what for long enough that they changed their minds eventually um so i do think the other thing is if our community does not 
make a loud enough noise about actually we'd quite like you to take this a bit more seriously our conventions won't and that will make our conventions more risky which i don't like very much and how much covid did how much covid did uk games expo have i don't know they had ten thousand people yes it's quite a lot of people anecdotally listener to the show andrew january says that a lot of the people he knows who work on stands at the uk games expo got pinged if listeners have read about anyone who contracted covid and thinks they contracted it at the games expo please let us know yeah i was gonna say i think it's interesting there's probably a psychological effect of please bring us your text message because yes you could forge it but then you have to make the deliberate act to basically say it's negative when it's not and put it in the website and get text message i think that's a much higher barrier than just not doing your lateral flow because you think you feel a bit snotty i think get your vaccinations if you can and test and bring us a thing is good yeah the octothought podcast endorses covid vaccination it does i also wonder what is it that you get out of being at a convention that you can do if you are masked at all times and keeping a social distance of a meter in what way is that better than zoom so i think there are many people who prefer in-person things to zoom think about all the people who haven't been at the first thursdays on zoom for instance and imagine how much they'd rather have a first thursday where everyone was masked and unvaccinated people were banned than they would a zoom one given that for them the zoom one means there isn't one versus there being one i think you and me are biased here in that we have spent an enormous amount of time on zoom I understand where you're coming from on that, but I think I also understand that there are people for whom that maths is very different. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not I don't think I'm oh we should we should have what was it? Lots of young people cram into tents and and share vapes. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I want the 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 Ted White room party of of covid policies. I don't think it's I think it would be fine to say that if you can be vaccinated you must be vaccinated and if you cannot be vaccinated it's not just because you have some personal conviction it's because you have a letter from a medical professional saying that that in their medical decision the risks of vaccination to you are too great to let it be happen. Um I think it's fine to say masks in public places but not for speakers and I understand that there's a risk there. I would recommend lateral flow twice before you go and then once every 48 hours if it's going on. So that would be my COVID policy in a nutshell. And open windows. Can we all have lots of ventilation? Put a sweater on. It'll, it'll be November. Yeah, put about 12 sweaters on, I think. Actually, you know, I went to Washington, D.C. in November and it was perfectly fine. And I, I'm, I'm talking about Corflu and Novacon. Oh, OK. Which I am going to rather than Discon, which I was never, ever going to. So, because I mean, I wouldn't fly. The notion that I get on an aeroplane—I mean, I'm sure aeroplanes are very safe. Are you, <laughs> Liz? Tell us how safe aeroplanes are. So, I mean, I'm not an expert in air ventilation, but from what I've read, they are actually quite safe because um, they do do a lot of air recirculation. Actually, I have seen a case which I think was where they traced the transmission to people going to the bathroom and taking their masks off, and then the next person using the bathroom and inhaling them, but. I mean, I've got to be honest, I've been on several long haul flights. Every single person was wearing a mask apart from when they were eating. Um, There's not a lot of people on, especially the long haul flights at the moment. And so it felt fairly safe to me. Actually, it's not. I'm, I'm lying. It's got nothing to do with getting on a plane. It's got I am not spending two hours in a US immigration queue. It's that sort of encounter that I, I, travelling in general contains 
risks that I find very difficult to mitigate. Well, it, it it's lucky you don't want to do that, Alison, because they don't want you to either. <laughs> I know they don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pretty sure the most reckless thing I have done in the past week is to eat breakfast in Leon in Heathrow Terminal 2. On the topic of Discon 3's COVID policy, another convention, as Liz, I think, mentioned, that had a similar policy was Convergence. And File 770 did recently link to a Twitter thread in which they said there had been a COVID case in an attendee, but we believe that this has not led to any at-con transmission, um, by which I mean we haven't found anyone say it has, and we feel that if it had done, someone would have said it did. I think there were two people who tested positive after convention, actually, because I'll send you a link, there's two on their Facebook page, one of whom thought they may have contracted it at the convention. Um, but it doesn't look like it's been a widespread thing. I mean, it's not like, you know, we're going to have a convergent strain of coronavirus, like you have the Wiscon strain of norovirus or whatever. Do we want to talk about EasterCon 2023? Oh, yeah, no, it looks like I'm bidding for it um, with some friends. <laughs> hey, do, you, do, we want, do we want to introduce this better than that or, or are we happy with that? <laughs> so um, at EasterCon this year, I um, said to the convention that it might want to pause before seating EasterCon 2023 with Vanessa and her team and go and have a little think about it. And um, as part of the process of having a little think about it, I am working on a bid with some friends. I don't think we're quite ready to say who we all are and that we're announcing, but it's it's definitely a bid. We had a proper meeting. Um, we're going off to look for some sites. Um, we have a philosophy, which is that we're going to uh, start to reach out to the EasterCon community and say, what would you like EasterCon 2023 to look like? And we will try and deliver it for you. And I, I hate to use the word hybrid convention. We are, I think, committed from the off to having both in-person and virtual elements if we can. And that is part of the structure and planning for this event, that we think that we are even in 2023, it is a racing certainty that some portion of our community would prefer to attend the convention online if that was an option for them. Um, so that's part of the deal. Um, yeah, more more stuff coming soon. Well, soonish. I mean, I think we'll have a proper launch no later than Novacon. Can you? Is there anything else you can tell us, Alison? Any any tidbits that we might be able to? exclusively real can you can you reveal the first letter of one of the people you're working with <laughs> um well there's me <laughs> so so that's M. so yeah no it's um i think everyone's fine to talk names but i don't think we're quite there yet we've got a team that covers i guess kind of site and access and comms and treasury and those sorts of things so it's got the infrastructure stuff in place but we don't really yet have a program lead so if that's something you'd really really like to do for the eastercon um <laughs> get in touch alison can you reveal if you'll be having a traditional committee structure or some kind of wild anarchy no it looks like we're going to have a chair who is caroline mullen and um and a set of people um with with roles um, and I, my role's probably going to be comms. As you can see, I'm doing a great job of it at the moment. <laughs> but that's because we need things We need things in place like social media accounts and websites and that sort of stuff. And, and we haven't really... Very important to have a website, I've been told. 
So, no, it has a traditional Eastcon structure. It's experienced people, but who are not all the same people um, that you've seen on Eastcon committees before. Yeah, though some of them are the same people you've seen on Eastcon committees before. You know what it's like. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to your Eastcon 2023 bit, Alison. I think it's going to be brilliant. So, and we've we've had a chat with Vanessa. I think, oh, this is the thing I did want to say, is that we've had a chat with Vanessa, or Caroline has had a chat with Vanessa, and um, and we feel like we're what we're doing is offering the... Eastercon, a couple of alternatives for what they want the convention to look like, because um, I think persistence is is going for something slightly different. Oh yeah, and we have a name. Oh. So so our name is Conversation. Oh. Because I think when we were talking about Earl, um, and the th- we're talking there about the thread of continuity, um, that if you're saying well. You're not just putting on a show when you run the EasterCon. You're actually building something for the community. What you're building is the opportunity to have those conversations across the across the community through time. All of that stuff. That was two scoops. I'm happy with that. That's how many I get when I go to the ice cream shop. So hopefully that's scoopy enough for you without me giving too much. Because we really don't have a lot yet. We have like a vast pile of notes and thoughts. Before we end the podcast, we are going to talk about, well, sorry, before we end the podcast, just a very quick plug for FutureCon 2021. This is a YouTube-based convention with items in a variety of time zones and with a variety of authors, and it's running on the weekend of the 3rd of September 2021. Alison and I, true to form, will be in the bar uh, because we're going on a pub crawl, listeners. We'll be in a totally different bar. Yeah. N- no. Well, we'll be in the same bar as one another. Oh, I hope so, yeah. Along with some yeah. other people. Well, I mean, if, you, if, if we're you're not, not... something has gone badly <laughs> yeah. wrong and I have been a bad pub crawl leader. So. <laughs> what is your feeling about, like, pub crawls? You know, does your pub crawl have the uh, no man left behind uh, ethos, John? <laughs> yeah, better bloody have. No man, woman or small furry creature from the Crab Nebula. I mean, oh, I should mention that Claire and I have a kind of pub crawl ethos which which was typified by our reading pub crawl where we crawled to one pub and <laughs> a then single stopped. brewery and it's fine yes i i will try and go to some of future con because i like that it's it's not just authors actually they've got some fans and they've got publishers you know interesting looking panel on like small press publishing around the world and they are incredibly international and show that by doing things in a you know many suitable for many time zones uh, and i think they'll all be on youtube afterwards so even if you are in the pub you can catch up later there you go that was my plug it's good good plug that was the 39th episode of the octothought podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me Now, I sold Alison a PlayStation 4 on the day that we did our live recording. And so for the last two or three weeks, Alison has been exploring Horizon Zero Dawn, which is a game me and Liz like a lot. Alison, do you like Horizon Zero Dawn? Bit stuck at the moment. So I haven't actually played for a few days because I got stuck and then it needs a fair chunk of time to get unstuck. 
I went down into a cauldron because I knew that there was, from the internet, Ooh. there was a swamp snap moor at the bottom of it. And I was like, I can deal with a snap moor. But it turned out to actually be a snap moor and a ravager. And my child is like, ah, nah, ravagers, they're like bait. You just, you just knock the cannon off their back. So then you pick up the cannon and you shoot everything. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm dead now. So yeah, so I need to I need to get better at Horizon Zero Dawn. Horizon Zero Dawn is an open world game that's slightly less, less open world than you think it is. There's, I feel like there's always a very clearly defined thing that you should probably be doing next. And if you're not doing it, then I mean you could do things in different orders. It's not that tied down. But if you're not doing it, then then you've probably it's quite easy to find yourself going off stray a bit. Um, but it's pretty good. It's very good. PlayStation 4, quite nice. Um, I, If anyone wants a second-hand Blu-ray player, let me know. Because... <laughs> yeah, as soon as, as soon as you get a PlayStation, you do not need a standalone DVD or Blu-ray player anymore, which is good. Because I was looking at my Blu-ray player and going, oh, that's not useful, is it? I've watched about three Blu-rays in the last year, and it probably is slightly better than the BS4. But it's also made by Sony, so it's probably exactly the same, really. And if anyone would like a Blu-ray player, they should get in touch. I kind of forgot to eat. And sl- uh, Horizon Zero Dawn is very pretty as well, and it has a it has a heroine that apparently people on the internet think is ugly because she doesn't doesn't. She's living in a post-apocalyptic spoiler post-apocalyptic world and doesn't clearly have access to makeup other than interesting forms of face paint. But she does apparently have access to, or hairdressing, actually. She clearly, she, instead of doing the obvious thing and cutting her hair short, she wears it in dreads. Um, she does apparently have access to eyebrow tweezers, which I, I find quite strange because she has extremely perfectly formed eyebrows. And I, this, I found this incredibly distracting, but otherwise. I have extremely perfectly formed eyebrows and I do not pluck them. So she might just be very lucky. Not like this, you don't. <laughs> There's a lot of criticism of, of, of Aloy on the internet, and I don't really understand it, because I thought I, I really liked her as a character. Yeah, she's great. She's apparently not the sort of video game lead character that 14-year-old boys like. That's the issue. I will also say, I am quite spoiler-averse, as many listeners may be aware, but I regard horizon zero dawn being in a post-apocalyptic future as on the cover of the video game and therefore not not really i I think if it's on the cover of the video game it's not a spoiler okay so should we talk about palm springs again where things that (laughs) were on the cover of the dvd i mean i I am aware that i am more spoiler reverse than many of the people i regularly converse with i don't always handle it well i don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that it's post-apocalyptic i mean you you learn about three minutes into the game that there's giant robot dinosaurs and and that there's kind of bits and pieces left over from from the previous civilization um and and yeah i think i think that very first scene where she discovers her focus in the ruins is like if you don't it's like one of the very first things in the game I think tells you pretty explicitly that it is so apologies for anyone who's playing it and hasn't 
Yeah, so Horizon Zero Dawn is very pretty. It's a very pretty game. I will. I, I took a screenshot and sent it to John, so I will it was find it. I, I mean, I had, to, I had to implement photo mode. The photo mode thing is quite fun. It is quite fun. And Horizon Forgotten West is coming in six months' time. So if there is another Hugo Award for Best Video Game, it will be eligible at the 2023 Worldcon. And we could talk about sequels. Yeah, I was thinking much more depressingly, like, I played Horizon Zero Dawn during, like, the first lockdown, so maybe in six months' time we'll have another variant, another lockdown, and I can play Horizon Forbidden West obsessively for two weeks. And that's where I'm going to end the episode and do the beep, Liz, (laughs) on that happy note. So, hurrah! The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.